Shalom, everyone, and welcome to the ICEJ weekly webinar Thursday afternoon, 4 p.m. here, Jerusalem time. I'm David Parsons, one of the vice presidents here at the International Christian Embassy and our senior spokesman. I'm coming to you from a very wet and rainy Jerusalem. We've had a bit of a late winter storm that uh, in some sense, it, it feels a little like it's dampened some of the tensions over the past week or so of the Passover holiday, also at Ramadan, where there was an escalation in violence, terror, rocket attacks that we're going to be addressing today. The rockets and terror at Passover is our theme, and we're, we're glad you joined us, and we have a very special guest Jonathan Conrikus. He is a uh, IDF lieutenant colonel in the reserves uh, and served for 24 years, uh, both as a combat commander and then as a spokesman in the in the IDF spokesman's office. Many of you may have seen him on Fox News, CNN, BBC, other international uh, global media, uh, trying to explain and defend Israel. Uh, over recent years. We're very happy to have you, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. A pleasure, an honor, and uh, shalom. Uh, from uh, I'm actually in Modin right now, so not so far from Jerusalem. Shalom to wherever you are watching from. Uh, always an honor and uh, a privilege to speak with people from around the world who care about Israel, care about the situation, and want to know more firsthand about what's ha really happening here in Israel. Yeah. Now, it says on uh, Jonathan's uh, CV that he's retired from the IDF, but I don't think he's retired from defending Israel. He's still uh, an advisor affiliated with the Foundation for the De Defense of Democracies, run by Clifford May in Washington, an excellent conservative uh, think tank there and uh, as well affiliated with the uh, Israel Defense and Security uh, Forum, the IDSF, which uh, was founded and is headed by our friend General uh, Amir Avivi, who we've had him as a guest uh, several times recently, very sharp, very astute in his insights. But we know Jonathan can also really take us behind the scenes of what's happening, give us the latest. We're so glad to have you, Jonathan. Let me just ask you to go ahead and start uh, with some opening remarks about uh, the recent Passover tensions, why they happened, what was behind it, and where is it heading? Right. So many in Israel over the last, thank you, David. Uh, many in Israel over the last few weeks, uh, in greater detail and greater intensity over the last, let's say, week and a half, have the impression that Israel is again under attack, and this time from different fronts simultaneously. We've had uh, rockets being fired from Lebanon. 34 rockets were fired from Lebanon last week. We've had terror attacks in the Jordan Valley where three Israeli women were brutally executed, murdered by a Palestinian terrorist. We've had rocket fire from Gaza. We have had violent uh, clashes and uh, rioting in Jerusalem, in the old city, and on the Temple Mount by Palestinian worshippers, including inside the Aqsa Mosque. And we have had very violent rhetoric and incitement all over social media, most of it emanating from Gaza, uh, governed by Hamas and the Islamic Jihad. And we are uh, preparing for tomorrow, which is the last Friday of Ramadan, the Muslim holy month, uh, which historically speaking is always very tense. And it usually is the culmination of many efforts by the Islamic Republic of Iran to um, incite violence in Israel, around Israel, uh, along its borders, and uh, Judea and Samaria, Gaza, wherever uh, it can be done. So we are bracing for that. 
Uh, it is tempting to accredit all of the uh, violence here directly to Iran and only to Iran. But if we zoom in a bit higher definition, then it's actually, uh, you could say that Hamas, the terrorist organization that has been governing the Gaza Strip ever since 2007, is actually taking a book, or sorry, a page out of the Iranian playbook. As in, they are now implementing the same strategy of using proxies in order to engage with Israel, doing it indirectly, and hoping to be less exposed to Israeli retaliation. What we've seen over the last two, three months is growing incitement on social media by Hamas, calling for violence during the month of Ramadan and calling for young Palestinian Muslim worshippers to abuse the access that they get to the holy sites, the Temple Mount and uh, the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, and to confront Israeli security forces, to engage, to confront, to riot, to do whatever violence they can in order to generate a sense of urgency and for the rest of the Arab and Muslim world to uh, be appalled or angered by whatever uh, media, whatever visuals, video comes out of the Temple Mount uh, and uh, to re respond to that and then to generate a circle of violence. Uh, that is the general strategy that Hamas has been deploying over the last months. And as we're speaking now, we're uh, getting towards really the peak or the pinnacle uh, of uh, many months of efforts by Hamas, by the Islamic uh, Jihad, and by Iran to escalate the situation. Uh, and uh, I totally agree with what you said, David, uh, that the weather may have a chilling effect on the situation because it is unusually cold and rainy. And that's a beautiful uh, thing because that will surely help calm tensions and uh, cool a few of the more hot-headed uh, people who may be uh, seeking to uh, e escalate the situation. Uh, what I would like to focus on in terms of things that are happening, if we zoom out, and I think we'll discuss it in greater detail, the big picture in the Middle East is not, uh, in general terms, a good picture when we speak about the U.S. and Israel. There are many in Israel who are trying to put lipstick on a pig and say that the situation isn't as bad as, bad as it is. But now, since I'm not in uniform, I can uh, say things that aren't the official uh, message paper. Um, I think that the deal between uh, all that the diplomatic achievements that Iran has been uh, achieving over the last months, first and foremost with Saudi, but also with other Gulf states, um, are very important for Iran, and they are very negative for, first and foremost, for the U.S., for U.S. international standing, for stability in the Middle East, and uh, for Israel. Uh, internal issues in Israel and how they are um, reflected in the Middle East, watched very closely by all of our enemies, uh, are all, also have great effect. And I think that all of our enemies are looking at, and specifically Iran, are looking at the internal situation, the internal political situation in Israel, and trying to prod and sense and understand if now would be a good time to implement a large-scale attack against Israel using the various proxies that are deployed along our borders, and some of them very close to us. Uh, so those are significant events that are happening. I'd like to remember, remind everybody that uh, in 2021, Ramadan of 2021, uh, started quite similar uh, with uh, Hamas incitement, violence on the Temple Mount, which then escalated into rocket fire by Hamas on uh, Jerusalem at our capital. Uh, in, in, causing also casualties. And then that uh, caused 11 days of fighting uh, between Israel and Hamas, with 11 Israelis killed and quite a lot of Palestinians killed as well, uh, and uh, a lot of bloodshed and, and fear 
and, uh, and violence. That was uh, 2021. I hope that can be avoided. And judging from the situation today, it seems as if Hamas is trying to, again, as I said, use proxies, other organizations, whether it's Lebanon or in uh, Judea and Samaria and in Jerusalem, to use others in order to pressure Israel without taking the fight to their home turf, to the Gaza Strip, where they know that they will face uh, dire consequences. So it's a uh, combustible situation, and I think we have a lot to unpack if we go into detail. Uh, a few challenges. And the last thing that I'll say as opening statement is that in general, what I think that Israel has done so far in response to Hamas and Iranian attacks has been the least necessary, the bare minimum of military response against these attacks, rockets fired from Lebanon, rockets from Gaza, terror attacks in the Jordan Valley and in other parts of Judea and Samaria and attempted attacks in Israel. So uh, Israel has done relatively uh, small concentrated efforts indicating to our enemies that Israel isn't looking to escalate the situation now, that Israel wants to uh, uh, allow the holy month of Ramadan to end, the Jewish uh, holiday of the Passover, Christian Easter, which uh, is uh, celebrated uh, as well. All of these three very important uh, holidays to uh, be celebrated and then uh, perhaps preparing for whatever will happen in, in the immediate future. David. Okay, thank you, Jonathan, for that excellent overview. Uh, some of some of this is familiar. We're, we're kind of used to escalations around the Jewish and Muslim holidays, uh, but some of it is new, where for the first time you had uh, almost intentionally a rocket volley uh, from Gaza, followed by a, a large rocket volley, the largest in years, from Lebanon, and then six or seven rockets from uh, Syria, one right after the other, sort of signaling Israel, this multi-front war is, is on your doorstep. And uh, so we want to talk about that. But let's, let's start with some of the familiar. You mentioned May 2021, just a couple years ago, where it, it was Ramadan, but it was also like near Jerusalem Day. And uh, Israelis, there were some Israelis who wanted to do a, a flag march in the old city and go to uh, the Western Wall Plaza. Some might have wanted to go up on the Temple Mount. Hamas says, no, you can't do it. So they started firing rockets and intimidating uh, Israel, trying to deter this. And, and now I think, uh, you know, there are more and more Israeli Jews who want to go up on the Temple Mount to visit. Some want to pray up there. There is limited prayer, very structured, very guarded, and and it's not uh, you know uh, pro provoking in any way to do that. But they're using that as a pretext. That happened again when I understand there were some radicals sleep, even spending the night up on up in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they had fireworks, rocks, and maybe even some pipe bombs hidden. To attack any Jews who might have come up there to visit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what, what the, the I think it is, you know, as, as for anybody who uh, respects and reveres holy sites to any other religion or to his own religion, I look at the behavior of so many young Palestinian Muslims, how they behave in what their religion considers to be. Uh, the third holiest site, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, I think it is, uh, it's, it's blasphemy, it's shameful. Uh, they uh, are uh, in premeditated acts of violence. They're bringing rocks, fireworks, Molotov cocktails, and weapons to the Temple Mount, what they call Haram Sharif, uh, and they do so in, in, in preparing for acts of violence against Israeli security forces. Um, and I think it's shameful. If a holy place is holy, then that isn't activity that should be conducted in any holy place, let alone what you consider to be your holy place. 
Um, and I think it's very unfortunate that, the, that so many young uh, Palestinian Muslims are victims of online incitement uh, by Hamas and by Iran, who are really have very large, substantial propaganda machines that are pumping out incitement videos and calls based on uh, half-truths, and they're using religious edicts and uh, things that are required according to Muslim faith. They're abusing that and calling on young Muslims to, uh, uh, to implement or to, to show their devotion to uh, the religion by staying overnight in the mosque, by refusing to vacate according to the established status quo and the procedures of the prayer, uh, and then firing firecrackers from within the mosque at Israeli security forces. All premeditated, and the aim of what they were doing was to create exactly the type of videos that they filmed from within the mosque, specifically for the purpose of those videos being broadcast around the Arab world and the international community to generate outrage and to generate this you know, uh, religious uh, anger and uh, rage, uh, which is very fake. I think Israel, official Israel and the security forces are very, very respectful of uh, Muslim, and of course Christian, but very, very respectful of Muslim uh, rights to access and freedom of religion and freedom of prayer on the Temple Mount. Uh, I would say that uh, Israel uh, implements Muslim freedom of uh, prayer much more than it implements Jewish freedom of prayer on the Temple Mount. Uh, if I, as an Israeli Jew, would want to go to the Temple Mount today and visit or pray, I've, I would face a lot of hurdles before I would uh, be able to do so. I'd have to get the special permit and go to a certain, uh, through a certain gate at a certain time, uh, through metal detectors, and I wouldn't be able to pray. Uh, I don't know if uh, this is common knowledge or not, but the Jews aren't allowed to pray on the Temple Mount. Christians uh, neither. Yes, which uh, which goes, I think, to show how much uh, the state of Israel upholds the status quo and uh, and respects Muslim rights to pray there, and how fake and insidious the propaganda coming out of Hamas and Iran regarding what's happening on the Temple Mount is happening. Last thing I'll say about this, it's so unfortunate that so many media outlets around the world are taking uh, videos coming out of the Temple Mosque and uh, Temple uh, Mount and Al-Aqsa Mosque at face value and just generating the outrage and generating the uh, sense of urgency and violence when it's all uh, premeditated, planned in advance, and designed exactly to achieve that. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, all this incitement on online that you're talking about that was whipped up out of the Israeli forces going into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, it was the these Muslim extremists who, who violated, they defiled that holy, you know, in their eyes, a sacred place when they took weapons in there. And, you know, you can use a church or a synagogue or a mosque as a sanctuary, but you can't take your weapons in there. As soon as you do, you, you've, uh, uh, you no longer have immunity in there. And I, I understand the Israeli forces only went in when they had barricaded the doors to the Al-Aqsa Mosque so that regular worshipers who wanted to come there and pray were not uh, allowed to, to come in. And that's why they, and they knew there were, there were rocks and fireworks and perhaps pipe bombs in there, and they went in and, and tried to cleanse that out uh, uh, in the best way they could. Exactly. That's exactly you, what didn't, you don't get that not only in all these insightful uh, videos that are on the, on the internet in the uh, Arab Muslim world, but even Jordan, which is supposed to be the, you know, they're the custodian, they are in charge of the WAKF, the Islamic Trust, on the Temple Mount, even they don't give that truth about what really uh, sort of sparked these particular Passover tensions. Well, then you had uh, you had rockets from Gaza 
and a couple terror attacks that, the, I mean, the one in the Jordan Valley was particularly tragic where this mother and two of, the, of her uh, five children died and, and uh, the husband heard about the attack on the radio. He was driving with them, but was ahead of him, had to go back and found his wife very shot up and his two daughters dead. It was horrible. It's uh, heartbreaking and it just, just goes to show the brutality and the um, dangers of the everyday life. These were civilians, civilian family in two separate vehicles, but a civilian family, three women driving in a car uh, on a civilian road uh, during uh, a holiday month. Uh, and it ended up with them being uh, executed at point blank. Uh, more than 22 rounds were fired by the Palestinian uh, terrorists who murdered them. Uh, after they rammed into their car, they fired more than 22 rounds uh, in what military terms you would call uh, uh, an execution, uh, making sure that the people are dead. And that's how atrocious and cruel uh, our enemies are, uh, which is uh, really unfortunate. And uh, I think it's a good opportunity to send Best wishes to the family, the, the Day family of the Efrat, and uh, hope that uh, that family will be strong enough, supported by community, friends, uh, family from around the world uh, to, um, to continue to prosper and to, to draw happiness and joy and strength from whatever they can in life. Uh, a tremendous blow. Uh, but unfortunately, they're not the, I don't think that they will be the last family in Israel that will be uh, subjected to uh, those kinds of terror attacks. Yeah, this this one sort of hit a little closer to home. We have a good friend, uh, Rabbi Shmuel Bowman, who we do, uh, uh, we put in bomb shelters in Israeli communities down near the border to help them from rocket attacks because they're not really covered by Iron Dome. He lives in a fraught. This family is his neighbor, and he he gave us a lot of the, the really uh, painful details about what was happening, and uh, it impacted a lot of Israelis. Uh, it was quite brutal. Uh, an Israeli Arab who ran his car off into a bike path down in Tel Aviv, wound up, uh, he thought he was hitting Israelis, but it was mainly Taurus. An Italian man died, so you've got four people now dead, and then these rocket attacks uh, I think what's different this time is we've had rockets from Gaza. That's nothing new. We've had rockets from Lebanon, even in recent years, a few, two or three at a time from like near Tyre, which it's Palestinian refugee camps. There's Hamas and, and other Palestinian militias there. Hezbollah would say it wasn't, a, it wasn't us, but this was 34 rockets just after the rockets from Gaza the day after, and then I think six rockets from Syria the next day, within three or four days, you had one, the other, from three different directions. That's a pretty serious signal to, to Israel that, that we've, we've got you encircled. Yeah, I think we could dig deeper a bit into the events in Lebanon, which I think you say correctly that it, it is the first time uh, fire of that magnitude from Lebanon at Israel. It's the biggest salvo of rockets fired uh, at Israel from Lebanon since 2006. The rockets were not fired by Hezbollah. Uh, they were fired by uh, Hamas-affiliated Palestinian units that operate uh, correctly, as you said, from the western part of the, the coastal area. The Palestinian refugee camps uh, around Pir. Um, by the way, those Palestinian so-called refugee camps are run by UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which had a that organization had a beautiful Christian uh, beginning uh, and notion to them, founded by people who probably wanted to alleviate suffering and do good for people in the world uh, back in 1948 and 49. Unfortunately, UNRWA still exists and uh, has about uh, 4 uh, million, uh, more than that, dependents, Palestinian dependents. Uh, and it's the only organization, only UN organization that runs, uh, that provides for one ethnic group in the world only. 
uh, unlike any other UN organization that provides services to whoever needs, uh, usually based on location. This one caters to one ethnic group, and it actually deviates from the standard UN definitions of refugee because anywhere else you look in the world, a refugee is a very temporary status. Here, uh, refugee status is hereditary. And in, in those so-called refugee camps, we have fifth generation Palestinian refugees, uh, which are very fertile breeding ground and recruiting grounds for Hamas. And what Hamas has done over the years, and I'm talking about an effort that started around 10 years ago, Hamas understood that it's a pretty uh, closed circle kind of a situation uh, where they don't have a lot of leverage at Israel. They have had tunnels, they have rockets, and they, those were the two main uh, weapons that they used against Israel, but both of them were located in the Gaza Strip. Uh, what they did under Iranian guidance and inspiration and assistance was to start to recruit Palestinians in southern Lebanon and to build military units in southern Lebanon with the knowledge and the tacit approval of Hezbollah, which was achieved through Iranian involvement and directives because Hezbollah is very territorial and doesn't want anybody interfering in their business in Lebanon, but the Iranian masters told them to. And uh, since it was important for Hamas, then it came into being. And what we saw last week was the first time that Hamas used these units for the first time in a more serious way. Uh, they didn't cause a lot of uh, damage and most of the rockets fell, fell short and in open terrain. We had two uh, slightly injured Israelis, one from falling and one from very light shrapnel. And so thank God, nothing uh, serious in terms of casualties, but 34 rockets fired from Lebanon at Israeli civilians. Uh, most of them, by the way, were, in, uh, were intercepted by the Iron Dome. But what I think is interesting here is to see uh, a terrorist organization, which itself is kind of an Iranian proxy, use its own proxy in another location in order to wage battle against Israel and to apply political and military pressure uh, on Israel. Uh, but the Israeli defense establishment quickly understood what was happening. And when Israel responded, it directed its fires to Lebanon as well. But the bulk of the Israeli response was against Hamas targets, military targets in Gaza. Um, so, so that's uh, a, a, an important uh, uh, thing to, uh, to, to keep in mind. Uh, but unfortunately, if we look ahead, uh, that military capability that Hamas has been building and is building in southern Lebanon still exists, and they will continue to build it, probably unchecked and unfettered by any involvement of the Lebanese government or anybody else. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, you know, uh, since there weren't too many, there weren't too many people actually hurt by these rocket attacks. It's sort of less pressure on Israel to really go after them. A big response, but we understand that uh, uh, the Israeli military intelligence were telling the political echelon we got to really limit the response because this thing could get out of hand, like May oh, two years ago when you had Israeli Arabs and Jews fighting in the streets, uh, really horrible scenes and uh, it's bad. There were also some drone attacks as well from uh, I think Syria and, and Gaza, or at least some drones that were flying in. I don't know if they were kamikaze drones. What can you tell us about that? Right, so it's not the first time. Uh, let's say a few words about drones. Um, Iran is a world leader in the uh, production, not necessarily in terms of the quality, but production and distribution of various types of drones. Uh, Iran has uh, a significant industry, a domestic industry, and they've generated quite a lot of knowledge. I wouldn't say that their capabilities are anywhere near uh, Israeli, US, Chinese, Russian, etc. But they are definitely 
uh, investing a lot of resources in it, then they have production lines and a lot of hours of operating drones all over the Middle East, and of course, exporting them also to countries like Russia, uh, where they're being used to perpetrate war crimes on a daily basis, firing them at electric facilities and at the civilians in, uh, in Ukraine, uh, done by Russia. Um, drones are what we could call the current weapon of choice, and perhaps the what may be a very significant weapon in any future conflict between Iranian proxies and Israel. Why so? Uh, because they are relatively um, low cost, inexpensive. Uh, they're rather easy to produce. Uh, they have great impact uh, in terms of uh, cap capacity to carry a payload. They are precise and have relatively good range of operations, again, depending on size and uh, where you send them from. Uh, they're also easy to transport from Iran uh, to proliferate, to provide them to other organizations like Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza, um, their Iranian militias in Syria. And so those are the, the main reasons why drones are such a popular weapon. Uh, we saw Hamas and Islamic Jihad in 2011, May 11, try to dispatch five uh, drones, UAVs, towards Israel during uh, the uh, operation there, during the fighting. All five of them were intercepted. Uh, we've seen Iranian forces try to dispatch drones from Syria at Israel uh, as far back as 2018. I remember it very vividly because I was um, in duty at the time and it happened when I was the IDF's international spokesperson. It was intercepted successfully by the IDF. By the way, much similar to what happened, very similar to what happened this time around as well. Uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon possesses a significant arsenal of uh, drones, some of them for intelligence collection purposes and some of them for offensive attacking purposes, which is what we usually call kamikaze drones or loitering munitions. And Hezbollah has been testing the air, like testing the waters, uh, for, for many years, uh, trying to uh, fly across the borders, see how, quick, how quickly Israel responds, and then adjusting their tactics and use of the, of the weapons accordingly. And the Iranians have been trying to um, encroach on Israeli so, uh, sovereignty uh, many times with drones as well. So it's nothing new, but I would say that this is the uh, probably most dynamic uh, sphere of operations that we face. This is where the Iranians are putting a lot of effort uh, and money and equipping all of their proxies with these weapons. And it's something that is relevant for other countries and uh, not only for Israel, um, you know, maybe two years ago, we could have said that, uh, well, it's an issue of, you know, anybody who is Iran's enemy, then uh, he should be concerned about Iranian drones. Then the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened, and then all of a sudden, it's not only an Israel issue. Uh, and of course, Iran used its drones to attack the Saudi uh, American oil facility a few years back in 2019. Uh, and, uh, and, and they can attack uh, various uh, other targets with their uh, drones as well. And so it's not something that is limited to Israel. Israel has a lot of experience defending against drones, and we are developing more and more systems as we go by. It is a weapon system that is difficult to detect and intercept in real time. And most of our systems are geared for bigger uh, targets that have a bigger either radar signature or silhouette uh, or fly slower. Uh, the drones, they're small, they're quick, uh, they're lethal, uh, and that's why they're so uh, popular amongst terrorist organizations. Yeah, that, the attack in 2019, I think uh, Iran showed they, they could do this uh, very coordinated uh, large-scale uh, operation, coordinated missile attacks fired from several directions and drones coming from several directions that hit the Saudi 
oil fields in the east. And even the U.S., which has, you know, ships and military installations all over the area, somehow they didn't detect it. And just as, uh, just as bad, the U.S. did not join the Saudis in responding in any way, uh, which uh, I think in retrospect looks like a mistake. But the, the Iranians have good capabilities, uh, very sadly, in, in drones. And I think that's part of the message they send, firing rockets and sending a couple drones at the same time that uh, reminding is, Israel of their capabilities. Uh, just as a sort of aside, Israel is also developing this iron beam. It's a laser system different than Iron Dome that might be able to take care of some of these new threats of drones and whatever a laser system and the radar. Can you tell us anything about that and how soon it might be deployed? Yeah, so Israel has the Iron Dome, which is the world's best and the most combat-proven interception system in the world with an interception rate of about 92% real-life scenarios. Uh, it's tremendous. It has saved hundreds of thousands of Israeli lives, and I would say millions of lives of Palestinians, uh, because it allows Israeli decision makers uh, that more time and uh, ease of decision, uh, because it uh, greatly diminishes the amount of casualties on the, uh, on the Israeli side. Uh, it has one significant drawback, or a few, one that the, yes, that's correct, it is very expensive. It is an expensive system to run, operate, and most importantly, the interceptor missiles, they're called Pamir in Hebrew. Uh, they cost around, now I think that the cost is around $50,000 per missile. Uh, went down from $120,000 in the past. Uh, some of it has to do with economy of scale and mass production. Uh, but these interceptors are very costly. And uh, they are not all produced, most of them are not produced in Israel. And Israel depends on the US uh, and US congressional approval for the replenishment of these interceptors. Uh, so that's one drawback. A second drawback is that the system, while excellent, uh, can be overwhelmed in terms of uh, the amount of rockets that it can intercept uh, at any given time, um, and then how long it takes to reload uh, any any launcher. Uh, of course, I can't go into details because that's classified military information, but what I can say is that Israel is very much aware of the fact that uh, it has a finite supply of missiles and uh, that there are many, many, many times more rockets aimed at Israeli civilians than there are Iron Dome interceptors. That is the kind of reasoning that has uh, developed, led to the development of the Iron Beam, which is still in developmental stages. It uh, has gone through successful uh, trials of intercepting rockets, uh, UAVs, and missiles, uh, all in test areas in, uh, done in Israel, uh, and is uh, moving forward in, in, in its development to implementation. I don't have uh, any latest and updated information on when that is going to happen, but when it does, what that system is designed to provide Israel is the ability to uh, deal with the numbers, the massive amount of rockets that according to any scenario, any war case scenario will be fired at Israel, that is what the system is designed to deal with, uh, with by, by simply by being able to fire beams of laser or projected energy uh, and reloading or recharging itself very quickly uh, and not relying on uh, missiles being provided uh, from around the world to Israel uh, or delivered from around the world to Israel, but only on electricity and uh, a chemical reaction that is generated uh, on stage. Uh, so hopefully that will happen as soon as possible, and then that will be a game changer uh, in terms of Israel's ability to defend its infrastructure and civilians. No, but that's also an incentive for Iran and its proxies to go ahead and fire their missiles 
now before this iron beam is, I think this is the, 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 the heart of the calculations right now because the strategy is Israel hasn't faced this all-out multi-front war yet. You, you had one with uh, Hezbollah and Gaza that basically tied up the north half of the country. Uh, Hezbollah's range has extended. They have targeted missiles, now drones. They can hit all the way to Demona and places in the Negev, Beersheba. Hamas can now reach central Israel from the south, but they've never really fired. It's been one of the questions uh, I've asked and, and Israeli uh, leaders, security political leaders, why haven't we had this two-front war? It's actually a three-front war, maybe even also a front from Iraq. Uh, some analysts say even from Yemen, from all sorts of directions that you could have 1,500, 2,000 rockets a day fired at Israel and it would overwhelm the Iron Dome. Yeah. Well, I think the main reason why it hasn't happened today uh, is related to what all of our enemies understand the consequences for them would be. Uh, they understand that if they, they might be able to fire a lot of rockets at Israel and they might be able to cause damage to Israel uh, and even kill Israeli civilians and cripple perhaps the economy for a while and really set Israel back. But at the end of the day, they know, Iran knows, Hamas knows, Hezbollah knows, the Palestinian Authority knows, anybody who is our enemy understands that uh, it, that won't uh, annihilate Israel and it won't beat Israel, and that Israel will strike back and that it will do so uh, with great power, with more power than they have available. Uh, and uh, so far, I think they've been making the calculation, is it worth it? Uh, according to their actions, so far they have answered themselves, no, it isn't worth it. Uh, and I hope that they'll continue to make that uh, calculation and continue to understand that it is not in their interest to attack Israel uh, in such a way, because at the end of the day, they will suffer. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, two, two more areas I want to cover in our time with you today, Jonathan. This is excellent stuff. We really appreciate it. One, it's not so nice to talk about, but Israel's internal divisions over the judicial reforms, and even the way a lot of Western countries, even American Jewish establishment, they really don't like this new Israeli government, particularly some of the more strict religious elements in it. And this uh, seems to have made uh, Israel at least look or appear to be a little more weak and vulnerable in the eyes of, of uh, Iran and some of its uh, proxy militias, Hezbollah, Hamas, was that a factor in all of this? Yeah, I think it's definitely a factor. And uh, perceptions are very important when you deal uh, with uh, deterring enemies um, and the projection of strength, unity, composure, uh, capability to act, capability to take decisions. Uh, those are very important uh, images that you want to be able to constantly project and maintain and uh, have uh, credible actions that support that image. And when um, the government went on, chose this path of the so-called judicial reform, uh, that had a lot of pushback in Israeli society, uh, including in the defense establishment. Uh, and it led to mass protest on the street, which was then amplified in the media. Um, and uh, as you said, reflected uh, globally and uh, at the, uh, let's say, two decision makers of our, of our enemies as well. Uh, and I think that uh, my personal assessment is that I, I think that the attacks that we saw over the last week and a half, two weeks, especially the ones from Lebanon and Syria, uh, I think are related to an attempt by Iran, by Hamas, and to a certain extent Hezbollah to kind of test the waters and see what kind of response Israel is capable of delivering back uh, while it is in such an internal delicate situation. Uh, my hope is that, and what I think should happen, 
is that the government, which is responsible for everything that happens in the country, the democratically elected government, should govern and should do so wisely and should reach a compromise with largest parts of Israeli society um, to do it in a uh, honest, well-intentioned and professional way and to get the support of the overwhelming majority of people in Israel who are uh, patriots, who care about the state of the situation of the country and who want stability and who want to continue to live here prosperously as a Jewish and democratic state. So it is the, uh, the, the, the job of the government to get that done together with the opposition. And once that happens, then Israel can uh, get busy with you know, the real big issues that it has to deal with, uh, mm -hmm. Iranian nuclear ambitions, uh, internal issues in Israel, cost of living, and many other things that are really pressing and, uh, and important, but externally and speaking about enemies, Iranian nuclear ambitions, Iranian regional proliferation uh, and uh, aggressive behavior towards Israel, and to try to generate positive traction and to expand the circle of peace, the Abraham Accords, and to bring uh, positive traction with other Muslim countries in the region. I don't think that any of that will happen before the internal issues are, uh, before they find a, a compromise that is acceptable on a large part of Israeli society. Yeah. You, you mentioned the Abraham Accords. That's my last big area to cover with you. It looked like Israel was making good progress, uh, you know, these uh, normalization deals with the Emirates, with Bahrain, with Morocco. And then Netanyahu came into uh, power in December saying, I'm, the Saudis are next. I'm going to make it my priority. But Iran has pulled off a real coup here with Chinese, uh, the Chinese as mediator, uh, a rapprochement of this seven-year breach in relations between Iran and, and, and the Saudis. Also, Syria, which was on the out-and-out -out with the Saudis. It's an Alawite uh, a regime that was slaughtering Sunni uh, Muslims all over Syria. They're now meeting in Riyadh with Saudi officials. And it just seems that Iran has pulled off a real coup here to, with the U.S. preoccupied by uh, the Chinese threat, by the war in Ukraine and Russia, the Russian threat, that Israel just looks a lot more isolated in the region by what Iran is doing diplomatically. It's very concerning. Yeah, I think that the, the Abraham Accords were partially a result of strong Israeli-US ties that were projected around the world, seen and understood by countries in the region uh, as the situation, that, that the bond between Israel and the US is strong, and therefore these other countries saw it within their interest to align with that. Second, it's also related to the fact that Israel projected strength, capacity, focus, and deterrence uh, when it came to fighting against Iranian malign activities, both against their nuclear ambitions as well as their regional terror um, and uh, their uh, uh, encroachment in the region. Um, and I think the uh, deal that you mentioned, the uh, Saudi-Iranian rapprochement deal, it's first and foremost a slap in the face for US foreign policy. Uh, and the secondary uh, result is Israel. It is definitely negative uh, for Israeli prospects that uh, that happened. And Iran, the Iranians have been very quick to read the map to understand that the US is seeking to be less involved in the Middle East. And uh, as such, they understand that as a time of opportunity and are pushing ahead, uh, diplomatically speaking, as well as militarily, but diplomatically speaking and making headway after headway and achievement after achievement uh, in the region, uh, which should trouble uh, people in Washington as it 
should trouble people in Jerusalem uh, who uh, deal with foreign policy and national security. And that is definitely a threat to regional stability. Uh, I don't think that Iran would have such success if the relationship between Israel and the US was strong, official, out in the open, and uh, let's say, um, looked genuine. And I don't think that they would be doing that if Israel was uh, projecting a image of uh, power and unity. Um, contrary, if Israel would have its own house in order, then uh, other uh, Muslim countries, I think, would be happy to join. Uh, happy to join what is a strong, vibrant, just, and moral uh, country. Um, but uh, we see things a bit on hold. And again, I go back to what I said, that the last question, uh, once the internal situation in Israel is settled with a positive, genuine compromise that it allows large parts of Israeli society to rally around it and to find uh, solutions in that, I think that will be the uh, gateway through which many positive things will come. Uh, regional uh, agreements, economic uh, uh, achievements, um, diplomacy, as well as military. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope uh, Netanyahu can do that without losing some of his, his government, certainly, but you, you think the door is still open to rapprochement with the Saudis? I would say that uh, yes, it is, because at the end of the day, the animosity um, between the Saudis and Iran is, it goes deep enough uh, for the Saudis to be able to uh, understand what really is the, the better place for them to be aligned with, uh, and that is uh, the US and Israel, uh, and that they cannot trust Iranian diplomacy, uh, and that Iran is a significant threat to the region and to Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that if uh, things will uh, be handled smartly enough by Israel and the US, then that will happen. Um, and I hope that that, will, that is what will happen in the future. Okay. It, it does seem like Iran is trying to, to remove the Saudis and these Gulf states from uh, you know, its calculations, if it gets in a war with Israel, at least they won't have to uh, face them off with them. But uh, I, I just want to uh, um, throw a couple questions at you that came in from viewers. One that asked simply, is it safe to visit Israel? And um, uh, you got a quick answer for that? I, I think so. It is safe. It is very safe. I don't know where the question came from. But uh, it is safe, and uh, I definitely welcome anybody to come for a 10-day trip to see the holy sites, to see history, to see the beauty of the country, to see the beauty of the people who live here, the diversity, have great food, have inspirational conversation and talk and personal moving mo moments, um, whatever your uh, religious or inclination is, whatever church or denomination. Um, it's definitely safe and uh, definitely something I recommend. The only thing I wouldn't recommend is to come in the middle of summer and then the weather is really harsh and hot. Uh, but May and October, May and November, really very good months to be here. Yeah, and um, uh, someone else has asked, uh, is Israel going to attack Iran's nuclear facilities anytime soon? I think this is the million dollar question for all of us. Uh... Yeah, that's the, the trillion dollar uh, global question. Uh, the military option, um, Israel is preparing one. And as the situation escalates and as Iran continues to proceed to enrich uranium to a grade only necessary for building a bomb, there are no civilian uses of 86 or 90% uh, enriched uranium, uh, but in order to build a bomb. So when they enrich at that level, it's clear what they want to achieve. Uh, and as the Iranian nuclear program, military nuclear program proceeds, Israel proceeds with its preparations. And I think that there's a strong, very strong consensus in Israel 
that Israel cannot allow Iran to achieve military nuclear capabilities. And if push comes to shove, Israel has done so in the past, and I, I think that Israel will do so again, safeguard its own existence and long-term strategic interests and take action, even if it won't be uh, internationally sanctioned or popular. Uh, I can remind everybody here that in 1981, um, Israel struck Osirat, Iraq's nuclear reactor, and prevented uh, Saddam Hussein, the dictator Saddam Hussein, from achieving uh, military capabilities. And in 2007, Israel struck Syrian nuclear reactors in Deir Azul and prevented the Syrian regime from achieving military uh, nuclear capabilities. Uh, wasn't popular at the time, was condemned at the time, including by our closest allies, but uh, with the perspective of history considered to be uh, events that preempted and uh, provided regional stability and, and, promote and supported world peace, not less than that. So I think that uh, if history is a, a ruler here, a guidance, I think that we will see the situation is different in Iran today. They have a much more hardened, defended, and a much more difficult nuclear program to attack. Uh, but Israel has um, capabilities, uh, and most importantly, the, the intention uh, to uh, uh, be able to do so. Uh, let's all hope that we won't have to do so, because that will have consequences that won't be limited to the Middle East, and it won't be limited to Israel. Yes. Now we have uh, one more viewer who's, I think she's a little frustrated, uh, probably like you and I, that uh, Israel's trying to make peace with the United Arab Emirates, and yet they're still uh, condemning Israel at the UN, voting against Israel, trying to drag it to the Hague court and all. But uh, I think we're all a little frustrated with that. But layout, layout, slowly, slowly, you, you make friends with them, and hopefully that pattern changes. We want to bring on a surprise special guest now, Jonathan, if you can just stay another minute, Rabbi Shmuel Bowman, who uh, I know you turn in, tune in a lot to the weekly ICJ webinar. You've been our partner for, I think, since 2010 or so in, in placing bomb shelters down along the Gaza border area, protecting Israeli communities also in the north, but you also live in Afrod and we're na your neighbors of this family uh, that uh, got really struck with this terror shooting in the Jordan Valley. Can you share just a little bit with us about that? Uh, sure. Um, shalom, everybody. And uh, shalom, Jonathan. Shalom. Shalom. I really appreciate your insights. Uh, you're very clear why you were the spokes, uh, spokesman and continue to uh, really represent us. So thank you so much. Um, one thing that just strikes me just off the top of my head, David, is, is that the title and the topic today is right out of Psalms 91. Mm -hmm. I think of uh, Do not fear the terror by night or the arrows that fly by day. Mm -hmm. And I think that you're, uh, I don't know if you meant this on purpose, but your combination of dealing with terror and with rockets uh, is right out of uh, Psalms 91. And with that in mind, uh, the uh, it's it's an imperative. It's an imperative not to fear. And I think that I think that how do you not fear? How do you how do you actually or how are you commanded not to have an emotion? And I think that the answer is many of the things that Jonathan was talking about in terms of our um, ability for preparedness, uh, our, our our the the absolute necessity to be together and united as a nation. Uh, that is absolutely uh, such an important ingredient. Um, and in order to have those in place, um, I think that when it comes to, I'll just say a word about the rockets. And I've been in touch with the mayor and the security chief of Shlomi, which is the town uh, of about approximately 8,000 people right on the Lebanon border in northern Israel. I encourage people to go and Google it or Yahoo map or whatever map app you use and take a look at where Shlomi is and realize it's literally on the other side of that mountain range 
are Hezbollah, Hezbollah terrorists shooting rockets, and they and that's where the bulk of the majority of the rockets uh, hit. Um, as the mayor of uh, of Shlomi reported on the news, <clears throat> that they completely lack public shelters. And like Jonathan talked about, one of the big fears is, is that the overwhelming, how, how Iron Dome can get overwhelmed and, and how shelters, therefore, as you know, we've played, uh, we've been in partnership together on, regarding placing so many shelters and really protecting the lives of, of thousands of Israelis and, 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 and visitors and Thai workers and so on. Uh, that shelters play a very important piece in that story. So we're going to be working closely with Shlomi uh, and helping them get more shelters, get shelters there to, to help save lives for the most vulnerable in their communities. The D family is an incredible family. Uh, we've known them for 20 years. They were our neighbors when, when they moved to Efrat and we lived in Efrat. Uh, Lucy uh, and her children and my family are connected. Uh, my children know their children, and Leo and Lucy and my wife Leah and I have been very good friends with them for over 20 years. I think that when he talked about some of the some of the takeaways that Leo talked about at both funerals, uh, first the double funeral of his daughters, um, Rina and Maya, and then for the funeral of his wife Lucy, he talked about the importance of uh, moral the 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 problem of moral equivalency. And one of the things that we're reading about in the international press, um, those who hate Israel talk about equating the victims with terrorists and that we should never and we can never do this. This is something that we constantly must voice our objection to. We cannot sit by and allow that kind of rhetoric to happen. So whatever country people are listening to, when that, when that comes up in the media, this is an, this is it must be responded to. There is, should be no moral equivalency between that. Uh, it's it's that, the idea of blaming the victims. I've heard this time and time again, and I'm so thankful to Jonathan for him describing that these are civilians driving on the civilian road. These were these were non-combatants. These were not <laughs> these were not soldiers, and they were not driving in a closed military zone. Okay, they were citizens of Israel, civilians driving on a civilian road, and they were they were cut down. And it's very, very important to be able to voice that to whatever media is happening in your countries. And the other thing that Leo talked about is, is that we have an absolute failure and a blurring of good and evil. And we must understand and we know of people of faith what good is and we know what evil is. And our problem in the world today, and it comes out in the media, and it comes out in, 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 in leaders, that that is becoming blurred or completely absent. Um, so those are thoughts that come away. We're neighbors with, we're friends in, of, of, of Leo and his uh, three children. Our community is a strong community. Uh, we have really, you know, we're, we're, we're together and like, you know, yes, and we're, we're here to help each other. Um, and, uh, and, and Leo acknowledged his, gra his gratitude to the entire support coming from around the world, including, and he mentioned this at the funeral, at Lucy's funeral on Friday, and he thanked the Christian community worldwide. People have been showing their support, continue to show, show the support. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you, Shmuel. I, I know, uh, because you you were so close to his family, I, you know I I know this is one of those attacks. A lot of attacks come and go, and you sort of remember. But this one uh, will stay with me and with all of us for a while. It's very tragic, and I know uh, we've been in Shlomi with you uh, just a couple of years ago, putting some shelters up there, and uh, we really need to turn our attention to some of the communities like we've been doing. I think we've done. 40 or so shelters up there with you. You've probably done a lot more through Operation Life Shield, but we got to get back to uh, to more shelters and more. I think we did 40 some uh, last year. It was the, the year of uh, the May, the 11 day um, uh, escalation in May of 2021, two years ago, where I think that year we did 40 some shelters in the South and, and starting in the North. Yeah, the North is, you're absolutely right. The North is something we, 
you know, the people in the North don't forget. I mean, we, you know, yeah. sometimes we, sometimes we're always in a reactive or, or reactive mode, you know, rockets coming no. in from Gaza. What do we do? And, and, and as you know, uh, our work is also to be not just reactive, but, but, but in a sense, proactive or, mm -hmm. or, you know, again, like Jonathan was talking about good planning and the North knows this. Shlomi, for example, in 2006, during the second Lebanon war was very heavily attacked. Those people who, are old enough to remember it, right? Uh, know full well what the potential is. It's true a lot of the kids don't remember it because they weren't around, but they know that they have a very dangerous enemy uh, on the border supported by an even more dangerous and more powerful uh, um, country, Iran, that uh, that has you know seemingly uh, you know unlimited uh, ability to do really terrible things. So it's very, very good that we're coming to their aid. And um, thank you. All right. Thank you, Shmuel. And uh, great to have you on as a surprise guest. Our thank you again to Jonathan Conrykus. Uh, you've been excellent today. First time on our ICJ weekly webinar. We hope to have you back. I think uh, one of the takeaways today is, is that, uh, you know, the the, these radical Muslim elements want to take the desire of Jews to at least visit the Temple Mount where their two temples stood. These were like the most magnificent temples of the whole ancient world built by Jews, you know, Israelite temples, and they can't even go visit the site or they're going to uh, start World War III. It's very tragic. But also I think uh, one of the other big takeaways is really fingering Hamas, trying to set up these proxy militias in Lebanon and elsewhere, following the pattern of Iran and really who's calling the shots. Does Iran dictate to them or are they an independent actor? I think this is uh, you know, some things we're gonna have to dig into some more next time. I appreciate your time. You've been excellent as a guest. Thank you. Bless you. Thank um, you, sir. We've got uh, the um, Yom HaShoah next week, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, and then Israel's 75th celebrations coming up the week after. We wish you the best in that, uh, Jonathan and, and Shmuel. We want to be able to, you know, have peace and calm and celebrate this landmark with with the Israeli people. Let's hope we do. Uh, next week, Global Prayer Gathering. Next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Israel time. Join us then with leaders from around the world praying for Israel, the region, and your countries. And then next uh, Thursday, again, ICJ weekly webinar, 4 p.m. Israel time here next week. Join us then. God bless you from Jerusalem. <laughs>